0: and with you always to the very end. All right. Thank you, Phoebe. Appreciate that. So, uh, I remember uh, when I was a very early Christian hearing an American preacher tell this possibly apocryphal story. But it goes like this. Uh, there was a young man entering into a wrestling tournament for the first time. This was in the States. And this guy uh, was doing fantastic uh, through the tournament. He was winning match after match, which was not surprising so much because it was his first tournament, but because it just so happened that this uh, boy only had one arm. Now, you can imagine this got quite a lot of uh, press over the course of a a couple of days of the tournament, and uh, the local newspaper, you know, covering the high school sports and all that sort of stuff, uh, they came along to find out what was going on. They they spoke to the coach, and they said, how is this possible that this young man with only one arm is is winning all these matches? And the coach says, well, you know, we only taught him one move. So, of course, the follow-up question was, well, how is it possible that a kid with only one arm and one move can be winning all these matches? And the coach said, well, the only way to counter this move is to grab the opponent's other arm. Now, like I said, possibly an apocryphal story, but it's a good one because it shows us that sometimes you only need one move to get the job done. And today we are going to be looking at the one move that God has given to his church to go forth and do again and again and again, and what that means for us. So let's get into this. We are looking at Matthew chapter 28. It's just after uh, Jesus has risen from the dead, and now his disciples are uh, are listening to the call that he's uh, given to them to come and meet him on the mountain. But it begins in 28.16 where it says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee. 11 is an important number here because it's not 12. It's still pretty recent history. Just a few days ago that Judas chose silver over the Savior. He chose uh, himself and his own fears and his own uh, greed over Jesus who he'd walked with for many years. And it's a, a stark and tragic reminder to us of how it's possible for us to walk in close proximity to Jesus but never fully commit to him. Nevertheless, as poignant as that word is, the passage doesn't dwell on that, but rather it moves on to set the scene uh, that we are going to have this command here of the Great Commission given to us. It says that the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Now, God's people going to a mountain is a reoccurring theme in Scripture. And I think here that there are shades of one of the most powerful stories of God's people coming to the mountain from the Old Testament, which was when, after God's people had left Egypt, Moses goes up the mountain to meet with the Lord. Now, what was interesting there was that Moses had to go by himself and the rest of the people had to stay down the bottom. God's holy presence was too much for the people to enter into. In fact, they were told that if they did so, they would die. But now, God's people are being called by the Lord's anointed one, Jesus, to come upon the mountain, to be in his presence. And through the work of what Christ has done on the cross, they can now enter into the presence of the Lord in a whole new way. And this is a new experience for all of them. And it's interesting, uh, their response as they get there. It says in Matthew twenty-eight, seventeen, When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted now i think that this is fascinating for two reasons the first one is it's really interesting that matthew uh, one of jesus's followers would choose to record the fact that in this moment where they saw jesus that some of them in some translations might have the word hesitated they doubted or they hesitated some worshiped but some doubted or hesitated and the reason that's interesting is because it points towards the truthfulness of the gospels if the disciples were just trying to put together some sort of you know, propaganda to convince people of this new religion, why would they include these details that you know, make things a little bit murky. They make the picture a little bit more confusing. What does it mean that some of them doubt it? You would think that this would be a little bit more uh like somebody's I don't know, Instagram, where it was all totally polished and looked clean and sharp and everything, you know, was what it was meant to be. Instead we get this account that's a little bit more like somebody's finster, where it's you know, the real picture, where you don't always look totally polished and great. And that kind of points towards the truth and accuracy of what is going on So that's the first thing. I think that that this detail points towards the truthfulness of the Gospels. But the other thing here is that it's good for us to note the way that these things are contrasted here between worshipped and doubted. So it's not a contrast between faith and doubt. It's a contrast between worship and doubt, or again, maybe hesitation. And so I think that what's happening here is not so much that the disciples were doubting whether it was really Jesus or whether he was risen from the dead, But rather, they weren't sure what their new response was meant to be to Jesus now that he'd risen from the dead. So some are worshipping him as the Lord God, but others, being the good Jewish boys that they were, were like, are we meant to worship this man, Jesus? They've been taught since they were little that they were only to worship God. If there had been one lesson that God's people had learnt in the Old Testament, it was to only worship the Lord your God. And so it shows us that in these early days of Jesus' followers after the resurrection, they're still figuring out what does it mean for us now to worship Jesus. But Jesus is going to give us here himself in just a moment a really clear declaration that indeed he is the Lord God. So, worshipped and doubted, but probably more about you know not so much a lack of faith, but rather what's meant to be our response to Jesus now. All right, then we get to the actual command of Jesus himself. Sometimes what's called the Great Commission. I'll read the whole thing and then we'll sort of break it down bit by bit. It says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey Everything I have commanded you. So we'll look at this in, in three parts. The first one here of the Great Commission here is this statement that Jesus makes about authority. He said, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now remember, this is right after the resurrection. It's only been a few days since Jesus rose from the dead. And Jesus is now making a statement. Now that I've triumphed over death, now that I've proven to you that everything I said was going to come to pass has come to pass, you need to understand completely and clearly who I am. He's been telling the disciples who he is all through the Gospels, but now after the resurrection, the proof of who he is has been given. See, through the Gospels, Jesus' favorite title for himself was Son of Man. And that was the title that referred back to this passage in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel, where it says this. Daniel, Old Testament prophet, uh, gets a vision from God, and this is what he sees. He says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. It says, He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power, all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is never lasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Three times Jesus declares that the Son of Man must suffer and be beaten and die before he rises again. And now that the Son of Man has died and risen again, Jesus says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is the declaration that I am who, that I said I am. I am the one who receives all authority. I'm the one with an everlasting dominion. I'm the one whose kingdom shall never end. And so Jesus makes it crystal clear to his disciples, this is who I am. And flowing out of that is the command to make disciples. Okay, It says in verse 19 there, therefore, so you've probably heard it before, but it's a great rule in scripture. Whenever you see the word therefore, you've got to ask yourself the question, what is the therefore There four. The word therefore connects two ideas together. Jesus is saying because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, go and make disciples. Now some people I think when they hear Jesus speaking like this, if they're not too familiar with the Bible, you might hear Jesus you know, giving this command, go and make disciples of me and think, Well isn't that a little arrogant? Like Why do they have to be followers of Jesus? Can't everybody find their own truth? Isn't this something where we all follow our own heart? Why does Jesus have to make it all about him? And the key to understanding why that's not an arrogant or a narcissistic claim is to understand that this has flown out of that command, or that, that statement he's just made, that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. The reason that we're to be followers of Jesus is because he is the Lord of all. His death and resurrection has shown that. It's not narcissistic or arrogant of the one who made the world and entered into the world to live a sinless life in order that he might rescue and redeem his people. It's not arrogant for that guy to say, follow me and make people fellow followers of the truth. And so he says, therefore, and go make disciples of all the nations. Now, that sentence goes along with these other ones here, and it's important that we understand this. Because whenever we translate from one language to another, we can lose some of the subtleties and that sort of thing. But I wanted you to get here that the key idea in this sentence is the making disciples idea. All right? So we've got, we've got a few words here that look like verbs. We've got go, make disciples, baptizing and teaching. But when you look at the Greek, the big idea that all the other ideas hang off is make disciples. All right? So what I'm going to do is, I've color coordinated it there for you to have a look at it. So, These other ideas that go along with the making disciples idea kind of fill out the picture for us of what it means to make disciples. When Jesus tells us to make disciples, he means go, baptize, and teach. So let's look at each of them in turn. First up, go. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. There is movement to this call. It's not a passive thing. Making disciples is something that Jesus is commanding his disciples to do, and it's something that's going to need them to move in order to do it. It's not just something that we just sit around waiting for the chance for it to happen, but rather we proactively go to do it. It's there again in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus' last words to the disciples before he ascends uh, to be with the Father in heaven. He says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Okay, You're going to be my witness in Jerusalem, locally, Judea, the country, Samaria, the country next door, and then to the ends of the earth. Now, that doesn't mean that every single individual disciple is going to travel to the ends of the earth. When you look at the early church, we see the Apostle Paul, who travels all around the Mediterranean, visiting lots of different countries, telling people there about Jesus. But then we see the Apostle James, one of Jesus' early disciples, who stays in Jerusalem until his death in 44 AD. So the command to the disciples is not every individual is going to go to the end of the earth, but the disciples, the church as a whole, is going to travel and go. So some are going to go very fast. Some are going to head out into the, the foreign mission field, if you like, while others are going to cross the street, or they're going to go next door. But whatever the case, there's a sense here in which we are going to people in order to make disciples. And it's, it's to the nations. It's no longer just for the people of Israel. It used to be that it was just God's people in Israel, but now it's to all nations everywhere that we are to go. So making disciples, going, is the idea that goes with that. Next up, we've got baptizing. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Spirit. All right. Baptism is really important because baptism is the symbol of us becoming a part of God's church. It's the outward sign of membership in God's people and in the covenant promises that he's made to all those who believe in him so baptism is something that we do in order to sort of give this visual symbol of now you have become a disciple of jesus it's, it's not necessary for salvation as such but it's really closely tied together christians are meant to be baptized and it's into the name of the father son and holy spirit Now that's interesting at this point in time in history because we today as Christians are super familiar with the idea of Father, Son, Spirit. It just sort of rolls off the tongue, we're really familiar with it. But in Jesus' time, this is the first time that these three ideas have really sort of been put together quite so strongly. In fact, it was such a surprise for them that the early Christians continued to only baptize in the name of Jesus for a fairly long time until they really figured out the Trinity and put the pieces together. But Jesus here even before he ascends to be with the Father in heaven, is clearly linking this idea that to be a disciple of Jesus is to be a follower who is baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That Jesus is co-equal with the Father and the Spirit, all God, the three in one. And that is who we as followers of Jesus are to follow. So doctrine is Im- important. All right? And speaking of doctrine being important, third one here, teaching. Make disciples, baptize, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. See, Jesus didn't say, go and make converts. He didn't go, he didn't say, go and make church attenders. He didn't say, go and find some people to fill the pews on a Sunday. He said, go and make disciples. It's not enough to just go and tell someone and then see them baptized and then leave them be. No, we are to teach them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. It's an ongoing process of learning more and more about who Jesus is in order that we might not just become followers, but mature followers. That we might enter into the depth of everything that he has for us. It's why we continue to teach the Scriptures week after week in church, in small groups, in all sorts of different settings. It's because we need to obey the whole counsel of God. That's why all of Scripture is valuable to us. We're to continue to obey Him. And that's the other thing. It's it's not just about knowledge. It's not just about knowing facts. He didn't say teach them to obey, or sorry, teach them what my word says. He says teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Jesus is not just our saviour, He's also our Lord. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. It's not something where I can just be like, yeah, I'm on the team and then do my own thing. No, no. Jesus is my Lord, the one who I obey. So making disciples looks like going. It's a proactive idea. It's baptising, it's initiating people into the family of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit... And it's about teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded to us. So that's, that's the big picture of what we've got here. And then it finishes with this promise. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I think that this passage is meant to be one of encouragement and comfort because Jesus in lots of places talked about how the Holy Spirit dwells in people who believe and that we who believe dwell in him. That's a really common theme that runs throughout the New Testament in lots of different places. But here Jesus ties it to the idea that as we go forth to make disciples, he promises to be with us. This isn't something that he's just sort of sending us off on an errand, and he's like, yeah, no, I'll see you when I see you. Don't just do your thing, guys. He's saying, as you do this, I I will be with you. It's there again in Acts 1. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses. God's Spirit is with us as we seek to make disciples. Now, I don't know about you, but that's an incredibly comforting idea because there's been lots of times when I've been discipling somebody, whether it's telling somebody about Jesus for the first time or whether it's about teaching them to obey and my words and my wisdom seems to be failing and I haven't had the words and I don't know what to say, but I know that in that moment, the Spirit of God is with me. And that if I can be faithful to love and to try and teach as best I can, then the Lord is with me in that moment, and that hopefully the Lord will be with that person that I'm speaking to as well. That surely as we go forth and make disciples, the Lord is with us to the very end of the age. So that's, it. That, that's the great commission. That's, that's the idea that Jesus is getting at. And it's a really vital thing for us to understand, because it's kind of there in that last part of the passage, right? Right? teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. What's Jesus just commanded? He's commanded them to go make disciples and baptize and teach. That command still rings true for us today. It's there for every generation. It's the one move that God has given to his church to do again and again and again. I often joke that when you look at uh, churches that take the Bible seriously and you look at their mission statements and that sort of thing, it's always just a reworking of the Great Commission. Even ours, right? Here at Gospel PC, we're all about knowing Jesus, loving people, and changing lives. What's that about? Knowing, teaching people to obey Jesus... Loving people just like Jesus commanded us to do, seeing lives change, seeing people go from, you know, not following God to following Him, seeing people go from immaturity to maturity in Christ. These are just different ways of saying that this is the mission that God has given to us. But it's not just, it's not just the obedience of this command. This is kind of like the fullness of everything that Jesus has been pointing towards as He's been walking through the disciples. And I've got one story to show the point of this. So in Matthew 12, earlier in his gospel, Jesus was asked, what is the most important uh, command in all the law? And this is the answer that Jesus gives. The most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. When we go forth and we make disciples as God's people, I think that this is the perfect way for us to both love God and love people. We love God in the fact that we're obeying his command and we're recognizing that he is the one who has all authority in heaven and earth. That it's an act of worship to declare to somebody else that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of all those who believe in him. We're, see, we're actually recognizing the truth of who Jesus says that he is every time we tell somebody else that Jesus is Lord and that he died and rose from the dead. It's an act of worship to make disciples, but not only that, but it's the greatest act of love that we can do for our neighbors to tell them about Jesus, to tell them about what he's done in order that they too might be brought into accordance with the truth in order that they might also know him as their Lord and Savior. Now they may or may not take that offer up. that That's not on us. We can't control that. But it is an act of love to tell somebody about Jesus. So often we're nervous and feel awkward about telling people about Jesus. Oh, I don't know if they really want to hear this. It's going to make the relationship weird and all that sort of stuff. Guys, this is the greatest act of love that you can do for your friends. So to look at somebody and say it's going to be awkward or weird or, or, or something like that and, and choose not to tell them about Jesus, that's an unloving thing to do. That's not kind, that, that's not helpful. Now look, I'm not saying that it needs to be your opening sentence in every friendship that you start. I'm not, I'm not saying that you're to you know smack people across the face with the Bible and, and, and try and force them into it. The, I'm not talking about that. It's not something where you should be looking to squeeze it in every sentence or every conversation. But that willingness to tell people about Jesus, that is an act of love. And that's first and foremost how we have to perceive this. Because it can get awkward to, to feel like this. And we can feel this pressure to, to make disciples. And all it, It's not about that. You know what we, we want to do? We want to love our friends. If we care about them, we want to love them. And that means stepping out sometimes and and taking that step in faith that Jesus is with me as I tell somebody about what Jesus has done. And I seek to teach them to obey everything that he has commanded us. And that's what we want to be doing again and again. Now again, it's not on us. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. He said, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. I can't make the seed grow in anybody's heart. But I can sow. I can plant. I can tell people about what Jesus has done. And when somebody starts to follow them, then I can accept responsibility to teach them, to train them, to raise them up. Now, we're not all going to be expert Bible teachers. We're not all going to have you know super Bible ninja skills to be flipping back and forth through different books of the Bible and answering every question. That, that's not what we're talking about here. If you're one chapter ahead, If you've got a pearl of wisdom that somebody else doesn't have and you're willing to share that humbly and in love, you're teaching people to obey. It's about us as the community of God, us as God's people together, accepting this responsibility to make disciples, to go, to baptize and teach. We all have different roles to play in this. It's something that we do together. And so my final thought is this. We're in lockdown right now. And all sorts of things have changed. And you know we, we're working towards coming back together and we're going to have more details about what that might look like over the coming weeks and that's great. But the thing is that even now, there are things that we can be doing to make disciples, to love people and love God by telling people about Jesus. We've encouraged you to do things like sharing this service here online, texting people, that sort of stuff. But you know what? The best ideas are going to come from you seeking to love the people that you know and making disciples in love for the Lord and love for your friends, family and neighbours around you. And I know that if we commit to doing that as God's people, as we seek to sow, then He is faithful to bring the growth. So, I'm going to pray for us now, that God's Spirit will be with us as He promises, as we seek to do this. Father God, we thank you for Jesus and all that He's done for us. We thank you for the privilege that it is to love you and love our neighbors, by seeking to make disciples. We pray, Father, that we'd be going, that we'd be proactive, whether that means going to the ends of the earth or whether that means crossing the street. Father, we pray that we would act in love in order to see people baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit and to teach people to obey you in all that you've given to us. And we pray, Father, that as we do this, your name would be lifted on high and that your Spirit would be with us and that many more would be added to your kingdom your everlasting dominion, where you will rule and reign forever and where we can worship you with all of our heart, mind, soul and strength. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.